This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good, you can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, uh, we have Nick Rowley. Uh, Most of you know who Nick is. If you don't, he is one of the most accomplished uh, trial lawyers of our generation. Over a billion dollars in verdicts and settlements, um, multiple eight and even a nine-figure uh, jury verdict, uh, and he's agreed to come and talk to us, and I really appreciate it. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, let's kind of jump right into it. Uh, you, know, you, you weren't born uh, a multi-million dollar jury verdict lawyer. Uh, tell me a little bit about your story and what you think led you down the path uh, to getting where you are today. Well, I was pretty much a juvenile delinquent from, you know, as early as I can remember. I didn't really fit in anywhere. I didn't like school. I grew up in a pretty rough household, born, raised in Iowa for my first seven years of life. And then we ended up on a border town in Arizona. And I was the only white English speaking kid in my class. I was one of a handful in the school got bullied and picked on a lot because of the color of my skin and not being able to speak the language. I found that the way I could fit in is by, you know, cracking jokes and, you know, being a a troublemaker and also being someone who, who would stand up and, you know, pop a bully in the nose without thinking twice about it. And so I got in a lot of fights and got in a lot of trouble, got expelled from every school, from fourth grade all the way through 11th grade. I graduated from high school from an alternative school. I was back, ended up back in Iowa because my parents split up when I was in fifth grade. My mom went back to Iowa and my dad stayed. I knew that I needed to do something to get into college because there was no way I was going to be able to get into college with my grades and my, you know, history, my school records. So I joined the military, went into the military and I wanted to, uh, I guess, kill bad guys, mm-hmm. but instead I ended up becoming a medic, so I got to save and help people, and that gave me purpose in life, helping others. When I was a kid, I always loved helping other people. I'd give anybody that needed it the shirt off my back. I've been that way since I was little, and I suppose that's because I grew up not having a lot, grew up not having you know, electricity or hot water. A lot of the time, rarely had a phone, at least until high school, homeless at times as a kid. So I joined the military and got the GI Bill, 
got my bachelor's degree done while I was in the service. Then I started law school while I was attached to an active reserve unit. Went to law school, then transitioned into helping people as a lawyer. Specifically, since I had a medical background, the medical malpractice cases, medical negligence cases, that's what came naturally to me. And along with those comes, you know, your personal injury, your catastrophic injury, wrongful death cases. So it was a fit. And I got to see the, the injustice that occurs in our world. And the only thing that exists for, for many people is the civil justice system. The only thing that's the only thing that, that is there for so many, because you can't, you don't see, you know, truck drivers getting criminally prosecuted for falling asleep at the wheel and, you know, plowing over and, and killing a family or permanently injuring somebody or paralyzing them or inflicting a permanent brain injury on them. And you don't see doctors going to jail when they don't pay attention to their patients and they ignore you know, the signs of, of a baby in distress that's still in, you know, her mama's womb with the fetal monitoring strip screaming out saying, I cannot breathe. I'm not getting oxygen. I'm dying. I'm suffocating. The doctor doesn't go to jail. Yet the parents and that family and that little girl has to live with cerebral palsy and spastic quadriplegia for life. And there's one thing, there's one thing that can help these people that can give them some sort of healing, some sort of justice. That's the civil justice system. So I got to help and save some people early on in my career and became addicted to it. Slowly but surely, I started trying cases. My motto was, I'll try any case anywhere against anyone. Give me your toughest cases. I wasn't afraid to lose because... I'd grown up being beat up and picking myself back up again and, you know, going on to the next fight. So I took that motto and that, that was what I applied to the practice of law. People started giving me their cases and, oh darn, I started winning them. So did you lose any before you hit your first big one? Oh yeah, yeah. I've lost 13 trials in my career. I learned more from my losses than I do my wins and I'm sure I'm going to lose some. As I move forward, because I, I, I don't just do the nice, clean, easy cases that, you know, any lawyer can walk into a courtroom and get a big, giant verdict on. You know, some people ask me, they say, well, what, what does it take to, to get a, you know, to get a 20, 20, $30 million verdict, Nick Rowley? You know, I, I mean, how do I know? And I said, well, you'll know you can accomplish that when you find a $100 million case. <laughs> So, it, yeah. you know, it's a lot, a lot of times the big verdicts we see out there were they were big verdicts because they, they should have been big verdicts. Yeah, absolutely. You just have to have the guts to go out and try them. You really do. And it's amazing how the fear of losing really paralyzes people from developing. I, I lost my first three jury trials. And then when I got a nice one on the fourth, that's all anyone talked about uh, was the yeah. They forget your losses, but it's it's getting past that that self doubt uh, and and lack of self worth that uh, you know and you know it's, you get over it when you lose a case, but and everyone else forgets about it. And maybe sometimes the lawyer that's beat me on a case will bring it back up 15 years later, and I would have already forgotten about it, you know. But it doesn't really bother me. Uh, 
it bothers sure. me if I don't feel like I did everything I, I could have done, but the, the, you know, it, it hurts right after you lose, but you get past it. You go to the next one and you move on. Uh, it's like, have you ever, have you ever won a case and you think you understand, you think you know why you want it, but that really wasn't the reason why you want it. Absolutely. <laughs> I t- tell you one thing though. We sure know why it is that we lose a case and we learn from that. Yeah. We don't, don't learn from our wins. We, we learn that it feels really good. It feels a whole lot better than losing. But if you're going to be a real trial lawyer, then you got to try tough cases. And if you're trying tough cases, you're not going to win them all. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. I noticed uh, there just seems to be a common thread among the top trial lawyers that very few of them seem to have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Uh, it, it seems to be a lot of people that had to work up the hard way, people that if they saw them in high school, no one would have predicted this would be the person that would be the you know, world famous, successful anything. Uh, why do you think that is? Life experience. You know, people that have, that have had that silver spoon in their mouth and never had to work hard. They've never had to feel what it's really like to fail. They've never been afraid, you know, or, or known what it is to go without. <laughs> to be a real trial or you, you have to, it's, it's life or death. You have to be hungry and it's not hungry for money. That's not what it is. It's, it's that, that you're, you know, that there, there's something within you something within us that drives us that the case is is really there's there's nothing more important in the world going to you know a i don't know sports event or hanging out with friends or partying or going home at you know going to happy hour you don't you don't see the real trial lawyers out there doing that you see them working doing whatever it takes. They don't cut corners. Yeah. Because they know that if they don't do it, no one's going to do it for them. People that grow up, you know, spoiled or having their parents, you know, pay for everything, grow up with silver spoon in their mouth. They don't know what it's like. I think it also gets harder to, because at least in my experience, it's hard to really know someone well enough to present their case without spending time with them at their home, with their family, with their friends. And I think those of us who didn't come from as privileged of a background, I think it's just easier to feel comfortable and fit in 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 the homes that most of our clients live in. Very true. I had a lawyer call me recently from out of state. He's on my my listserv. And anyone who wants to be on the trial by human listserv, it's trialbyhuman.com. It's a pretty good listserv. It is. No. One rule, just be nice to each other. Well, another rule. You're an insurance defense lawyer. You're not on our list, sir. If you are, we'll, we'll report you to your state bar because you have to sign something saying you're not. And if you're a criminal prosecutor, you're not on our list, sir. So the, I get this call from this lawyer out of state and he starts talking to me about his, about his client. Now, he doesn't really like his client doesn't like the guy that he represents and I said how much how much time have you spent with him he goes well you know I said no how much time have you spent with him well none said do you think he likes you what reason does he have to like you 
Yeah. Other than yeah. the fact that he signed a retainer with you, and you're somebody that that wants him. Because let's be brutally honest, you want him to do a good job for you, so that you can make money. Because all he really is to you is a number. All he is, he's a number, a number that's going to cost you money at the end of the day or make you money. That's it. He's not a human being. What's his life story? Where was he born? What are the things that are most important to him? Let's spend some of this right now that we have and do a Zoom conference with him and say, hey, I don't want to talk to you about your case. I just want to get to know you. And I'm sorry that I haven't done that. Sorry that I don't know you. I should, I should know you. And I've failed. Yeah, you can't expect a jury to care about the people we we represent unless we're willing to do it first. Absolutely. I think one thing Mallory and I discovered our last trial is we felt we we got brought into a case that had been going on for almost ten years and for lots of different reasons had never gone to trial, uh, and no one before we got involved had really listened to the widow. Uh, I think Mallory, you could probably put in better words than I can, but I think just the, the fact that she had people care enough to spend time with her and learn and honor her story, even if we hadn't won the trial, I, I think would have been, we actually, we saw changes in her through the trial. She was starting to come out of her shell, just having other human beings care about each about her uh i think was it's not something that she had necessarily had especially someone like a big lawyer or something you know actually spending the time with her not to talk about money not talk about her case but talk about her and why this person was important to her and how her life was before and how it's been affected uh i don't know what do you think mallory i think that yeah i mean i think that spending time with a client and getting to know what motivates them. Um, I, you know, before we spent a lot of time with her, I had trouble relating to her. Um, but then we spent a weekend with her and her family and her friends. And it just really, really changed my perspective of her and of the case. Um, and it was a lot more personal for me, which I think made us better advocates for the trial. Makes a world of difference. Yeah. Good job. I'd like to ask you now, you know, you hear the stories about the big verdicts, you hear the stories about the chicken suit, uh, but do you have a particular case that you're most proud of and, and why? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. There, there, there are many, many that I'm proud of. And, you know, rather than talking about, you know, big eight-figure verdicts and nine-figure verdicts, there, there's a case that it was against Costco. It was a, a trial, a case going to trial in Santa Monica, and another lawyer was set to try it. He had reported on Friday. Judge, you know, answered ready. They did the motions in limine. Jury was ordered for Monday morning. And I got a call on Sunday night, and this lawyer had some, had some major personal issues come up and, and some health issues was was unable to to competently try the case and hadn't slept for the entire weekend wow was in really bad shape called and said what do i do so i i said well i'll on sunday you know sunday evening i said i'll i'll meet you at the courthouse tomorrow so you can introduce me to the client 
and I'll get the case continued for you. And then you need to do what's necessary to take care of yourself. So we went in and this was a zero offer case. The lawyer representing Costco does all the Costco cases and, and he, um, he says he says he's never lost any in however many years. So we go into to the courtroom. I tell the lawyer, I pull him aside. Well, I see, see the lawyer that called on me and he's in very, very bad shape. So he introduced me to the client. And I mean, he's, he's literally shaking. He's got some major issues going on. I was scared for him. I said, you got to leave. So I had him leave. Talked to the defense lawyer and I, I said, listen, lawyer's going to try this case. I'm not going to name who it is. He's in, um, he's in really bad shape. We need to continue this case. The Costco's lawyer looked at me and said, I'm not continuing it. I'm ready. Uh, I, well, um, the right thing to do is to continue the trial. This, this man has some, some major health issues going on and some psychiatric issues, some other stuff. And the, the defense lawyer was just, just ecstatic. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, not only was, gonna, was he going to win this case before because he's so you know, confident and full of himself and never loses, but now, now he really had a, had a feather in his cap. And he said, you know, if you ask nicely, I'll call Costco up. I'll call my client up and see if they'll do a waiver of costs. Hmm. I said, all right, you know what? You want yourself a jury trial? You got one. You got me. The jury consultant that was on the case was, was Steve Haltman, you know, who I wrote trial by human with. So he'd been working on the case. I said, Steve, Got to tell me what this case was about. <laughs> he gave me the rundown. I went to the defense lawyer. I said, you know, we can do what's called an expedited jury trial. I mean, you're going to win anyways. So um, you agree to less than, than a 12-person jury, and we, we get the case presented. We each put, you know, put on three hours of evidence. He goes, sounds good to me. So we... And he said, you know, how about that, you know, dismissal, that, that waiver of costs? And I said, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to have our jury trial. So the judge um, comes out, says, all right, you guys ready? I said, we are. And he goes, who are you? And I said, I'm Nick Rowley. He said, well, nice to meet you, Mr. Rowley. Where's so-and-so? And I said, not able to be here, Your Honor. He had some problems. And um, defense counsel was, was unwilling to continue the case. The judge kind of looks over at the defense lawyer and, and said, okay, you, are you sure you're ready? I said, I'm ready. So he calls in the jury. This, this all happened within 30 minutes of me showing up in court. This, this judge had been a federal judge and now he's in state court and he just, he moves quick, quick. So I did a mini opening statement and I told, I told the jurors, I, I said, listen, one of three things is going to happen here. But first you need to know that what happened to this woman she had both of her quadriceps torn off of her knee. She had fallen, suffered a really, really bad injury. It put her in a, put her in a care home for three months. What happened to her and the value of her damages and what she'll suffer from for the rest of her life is worth millions of dollars. But one of th three things is going to happen here. 
Number one, you're going to listen to the evidence. You're going to match it up with the law. And you're going to decide that she was negligent. This woman here that I represent, she was negligent. Should have been paying better attention. Should have been more careful. She wasn't. She was negligent and she injured herself and she's at fault. And that means the defense, Costco Corporation, they win. They win this case. She goes home with nothing. nothing. Millions of dollars in damages, sure, but Costco is not responsible because she was negligent. It's her fault. Second thing that might happen is you decide that this is a case of shared responsibility. Where she was negligent, she should have been more careful, but also the corporation, Costco, was negligent too. And Costco bears some responsibility. She's going to pay for the consequences of what happened to her body for the rest of her life. But Costco ought to pay something too. Shared responsibility because Costco was not providing the safe environment, the safe walkway that they should have. The third thing that might happen is that you come back and you decide that Costco is completely at fault for negligently causing what happened to this woman, you know, causing her injuries. And I went on and on and on. Look forward to presenting some evidence to you. But most importantly right now, I need to know, is she going to get a fair jury? I mean, this is a very large black woman. And I don't see anybody who's black in this courtroom. So I want to talk to you all about that. And I'm going to ask you to be brutally honest. So then we start, Fensler gets up and gives his spiel. You know, Costco did nothing wrong. She's at fault. This is a frivolous lawsuit. We do jury selection. And I had talked to all the jurors about, about race. Could, you know, is anyone offended here? Can you imagine what it would be like to, to be a large black woman here in Santa Monica with an all-white jury? Mr. Johnson, can you imagine that? He goes, no, I really can't, but it must be scary. So I, I just got everybody talking about it. it, it does it offend you to, to know that I'm, I'm actually talking to people here about race being an issue? Does that make you feel like I'm calling you out as being prejudiced? No, not at all. I understand I'm doing my job. I have to do that. You know, sometimes it might be one out of 100, but someone will raise their hand and say, I, I have I have some prejudice, some racism in me, and you know, I may not be the right juror for the case. I mean, think about it for a moment. Would, would, she, in, would she be in a better position if she was a thinner, whiter human, maybe a school teacher? Here is the person that got hurt at Costco. I mean, just change that in your mind for a moment. Do you understand what I'm saying? And all the jurors, they got it. They totally understood it. We put on the evidence. The defense um, had their expert there ready to go after the opening statement. And the defense lawyer said, well, um, you know, I need to get him off by a certain time. So how long is your witness going to take? And I said, why don't you just put him on first? So he went on first and I cross-examined him. And the one expert we had, premises liability expert, watched him testify cross-examined him, then put my guy on the stand. Put my client on the stand, put her friend on the stand, and we rested. Total testimony in the case was maybe an hour and 30 minutes max. Wow. Did closing argument, and the jury came back with, and I waived all the medicals. 
stipulated because the defense was that she had severe degenerative disease in her knees. I stipulated to that. So, so, we, so we went to the, to the jury with a stipulation that she had torn quadriceps. That's it. No medical evidence. But I had her explain what that was and how her body feels different. And the jury came back in less than an hour with a $1.5 million verdict, all non-economic damages. Wow. Costco, you know, came in and asked for a new trial and all kinds of bullshit. The judge denied it. <laughs> and that, that really changed this, this lady's life. Absolutely. She's been a friend ever since. So that's a case I'm really proud of. Now, one thing I've heard about you in trial, tell me if I'm wrong, but you actually exercise, maybe even sleep and eat right during trials? Absolutely. When I'm in trial, I'm healthy. I'm exercising. I'm meditating. I'm sleeping well. I do not stay up late, but I get up very, very early. I eat very healthy when I'm in trial. I don't drink any alcohol at all. And I go through, you know, months throughout the year where I don't drink. You know, I'm not a person who will say, I'm, you know, I won't have a glass of wine. But during trial, I won't. And I go through months where I absolutely detox. So if I'm in, if I'm in trial, you know, 10 times a year, I'm looking really damn good. <laughs> when I'm not in trial that, you know, I don't take care of myself as well. So what kind of preparation do you have to do to not have to stay up late at night while you're trying the case to get ready for the next witness or look at the, what motions got filed, et cetera? Oh, reading a whole bunch of depositions and going through a whole bunch of, you know, all the written stuff is going to take you away from the human story of the case. That's something that should be alive within you. It should be in your heart, soul, your DNA, in your mind. You should be dreaming about that case. You're, you're preparing while you're sleeping. I keep a notepad next to my bed when I sleep and I get up and I, if I have ideas and I, and I write and I go back to bed because I'll, I'll dream about cross-examining the witness I'm going to take on the next, next day. I get up in the morning, I write down my thoughts, I exercise and then I, and then I do that stuff. When, when trials, when trials done for the day, you've got to take a break and clear your mind and create a list right out. What are the things I have to do? And also, you should always try the case with a team. So if the person you're, you're doing, you know, that, that you're working with is doing the witnesses the next day or the witnesses the next morning, then maybe you're the one that takes the laboring order to deal with the bullshit motions the defense is filing or doing the research and the motions that you have to file. So I do that. If I'm in trial with, with one of my friends, I, I take the laboring or Say, all right, I'll, I'll deal with this motion limine issue or this you know, motion to exclude or motion to cure, whatever it is, I'll write that. But I don't stay up, you know, past 8.30 working. Wow. If you do that, you're going to fry your brain. It's not, it's not the way to win. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, 
please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. When, when you go in in the morning to try a case, you want to keep that energy going all day long. And if you're burning the midnight oil, you're not going to, you're going to start falling flat. You're not going to be as sharp as you otherwise might be. And we know trials are fluid. They're fluid. What you think is going to happen isn't always going to happen. You have to be able to react in the moment to dodge something and come back at them with something else. You have to have the energy to be in the moment. It's real time. Spend a whole bunch of time reading a whole bunch of depositions, you know, preparing your pages and your line numbers and all that crap, you know, staying up late. You're not going to have the energy to, to take that cross-examination or if you start doing poorly, to be able to step back, regroup, take a breath, and then come right back at them. You won't be in tune with the jury, and the jury won't want to be in tune with you because you're exhausted. Maybe you're crabby. Maybe you're losing your temper. You're out of touch with what's really going on in that courtroom. If you're going to be the leader, and you have to be healthy. Your mind has to be clear. Don't eat right. Eat crappy food. Drink during trial. Don't get your sleep. You're not going to be able to do any of those things. So what you ought to be doing then is just making sure you have $100 million cases so you can get $20 million verdicts. <laughs> so you came up, uh, I think you're most famous for the term brutal honesty. How did you come up with that? I was in the barn, the Johnson barn at Jerry Spence's ranch. I was teaching. We, we had formed a little group and, you know, that. I think the session was done for the day, but we formed our own little group and we were working on jury selection. I've always been one of those guys like, okay, class is over, but now, well, not in, you know, elementary or high school, but after that, you know, when it comes to law school or, or trying a case, I, you know, wouldn't always learn when I'm in the classroom environment, class is over. Now let's, you know, get a few people together and try to figure this all out. I knew that jury selection was the key, and it's the part of the trial that I had struggled most with. I'd tried a, a number of cases before I'd gone to the college. So um, there, there was a person playing a juror. You know, he's being a real hard ass. And he said, and he, and he said in response to what I was asking him, I was talking about money damages or something. I don't even know how I was framing it. But I do remember he said, what, you want me to be honest with you? And I said, I do. Well, how honest do you want me to be? And I said, I want you to be brutally honest. And that mock juror, because it was another lawyer playing the juror, actually like shifted his body and said, okay, I'm going to let you have it. You know, he didn't say that, but he just, you know, shifted his body and then just started tearing into me. You know, you're one of those greedy lawyers and, you know, you're just here for the money and you're this and you're this and you're this and you're that. And I don't believe in your case. 
I said, wow. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I wonder who else here feels the same way. Thanks for being brutally honest. And then the other, you know, people that were in the group started kind of popping up and everybody got to talking. And it, it was at that moment that it clicked and I went back and I wrote brutally honest. And so it wasn't brutal honesty, it was brutally honest. And then I did a number of focus groups, a number of trials, testing it, testing it. And I, and I came, to the, came to the conclusion that brutal honesty isn't something that I get from a jury by telling them what brutal honesty is by getting them to define it and making it, making the phrase theirs. That's why you say brutal honesty, brutal honesty. What does brutal honesty mean to you? And then you shut your mouth and you listen. Will someone please talk to me? Brutal honesty, it's, it's telling somebody, you know, what you think, you know, with, without worrying about hurting their feelings or not. Thank you. Um, not sugarcoating. Telling the truth no matter how much it hurts. Okay, you know, and people give their definition. You thank them. You ask them to, if, if they will, please be brutally honest during this process. No matter what we're talking about, don't hold anything back. and Don't be afraid of hurting my feelings. That's what we need here. And, and, and jurors will literally, just like that, that mock juror in, in the Johnson barn, will shift and say, okay, that's what you want. That's what you're going to get. Ever since, it's, um, it's made a big difference with picking juries. It becomes a theme of the entire trial. And what do you do with it when you ask someone to be brutally honest and they go tell you how they don't like trial lawyers or they don't like the idea of, you know, money for pain or – and you talk to them about it. So you, if you're a juror and you're being brutally honest, what, what are you going to say to me? I don't know. I'd be like, oh, I don't like it. I don't know what I'd do. I'd have a lot of trouble going back there and doing something I don't believe in. And I wouldn't want you to do that. I really appreciate you sharing how you feel. I'm sure there are other people that feel the same way. And back when I started doing this, it's the way that I felt. So you're not alone. You know, if this were a case um, about medical bills or, or a lost paycheck, you know, or damages somebody's house and you had someone come in here and tell you what the appraisal is, would that be, I guess, yeah, that would be okay. Case for you? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because you can put a number on that. Have you ever thought of the, the value of things that you can't put a number on? Like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, there is no value on those things. I mean, it's too, you can't put a number value on those things. It's. What we have with the civil justice system is we don't have an eye for an eye or a neck for a neck or a leg for a leg, you know, or a 
a life for a life that that was done away with back when when our constitution was written and the and the bill of rights was was formed put together and instead in place of it if life liberty and the pursuit of happiness is taken away from a person as priceless as it might be our forefathers decided that a jury, members of the community, would make a decision about what, what that is worth and assign a dollar value to it. And that'll be the only form of justice there is. That's, does that make sense? I guess, yeah. And without folks you know, being willing to be a part of that, I mean, I don't see us going back to an eye for an eye or a life for a life. But I need to make sure that people who end up on this jury will have an open mind and say it is something that if the evidence in the law justifies it that you can count on me to do what's right and not to to make this a jury verdict it's going to be a low jury verdict a low number because I have bias prejudice or opinions that are adverse to money for pain and suffering or loss of a life you with me yeah so where does that leave us well, I could try. I could try to keep an open mind. Well, I could try to be faithful, but, <laughs> you know, that's what I told my wife. She'd say, sorry, <laughs> you, you, need, you need to give us some assurance. Yep. You know, you, 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 need, you need to commit, not try, but commit to being able to do that job if the evidence in the law justifies it. I follow the law. Well, I'll follow the law. But you get to do whatever you want back there in that jury room. So I'm trying to get a get a forecast is, you know, brutal honesty. Are you going to be somewhere, someone back in that jury room who's going to say, you know what? I don't like money for pain and suffering. So it's either no number or a low number. Probably. That would make you a better juror for the defense. Yeah. They got 12 jurors like you, they'd be in really good shape. <laughs> You're probably right. That would give them an unfair advantage over the man that I'm representing who deserves just as fair of a trial as they do. Would you agree? Yes. Would you be offended if I asked the judge to not have you as a juror on the case? I'd be delighted. <laughs> who else feels the same way? That's probably maybe how I might handle it. Yeah, one of the issues we have is we just have some judges that uh, misinterpret one case that we have that almost never strike jurors for cause anymore. Uh, they In Texas, they're just like, it, unless they say, judge, I am going to disobey your instructions and, and disobey the law. Not all judges believe that, but there's some that just, there's one case that... Uh, basically, you know, affirmed a juror not being stricken and said the judge has the discretion to not just look at the words they say, but the facial expressions, the body language, and kind of get the gist of it, but they misread it to say that unless the juror will commit that they won't, that they'll disobey. And then also, are you going to follow my instructions? Are you going to disobey me? And so, you know, we've that's been one of the issues we've been having in, in Vordire, and we've kind of tried to do more. You, of you, you give me that case, and you get me a Texas jury, and yeah. I'm pretty confident we can get her done. Yep. 
Well, there's, you know, there's other ways to, to do things other than knocking people off for cause too. So. Yeah, I've found that the judges who are the most difficult with cause challenges are granting pretty much every cause challenge I make. Oh, well. But I'm not, I'm not going in with the goal of getting a whole bunch of cause challenges granted. I truly walk into a courtroom and I hope, I hope that every one of those jurors has what it takes to sit on the case. As they shuffle in, I don't start looking and stereotyping people and saying, man, look at that guy. He looks like a real asshole. You know, or look at that lady. She looks mean and old. You know, or look, look at that one. She's young. She doesn't know anything. Millennials are horrible jurors. I don't do any of that because I've been proven wrong every time I, I think that way. Kind of switching subjects a little bit. Uh, I was surprised, you know, you're, all your fame is as a trial lawyer, but then when I read Riding with the Bulls, it's a book about settling cases. What inspired you to write a book about settling cases after you'd written one about trying them? Well, to be brutally honest, I do settle cases. And the, the secret to settling cases is having the balls to go to trial. And making sure that you try your case and you get paid is something people have a difficult time with. Because just because you get a jury verdict doesn't mean you're, you're going to get paid. Sometimes you get a jury verdict and that's the first time you get an offer on the case. Yep. Right? Then they think, oh, boy, they're, you know, you got a verdict this, and they're going to offer you that. It's insane. So I, I, you know, I was really frustrated with that over the years. So I started thinking of ways to preemptively strike to make sure that when I get that jury verdict that I'm able to collect it immediately. Or I get that defendant as my own client to prosecute a, you know, bad faith claim negligence claim against the insurance company and sometimes that shit weasel insurance defense lawyer yeah because some of them are shit weasels i mean there are a few nice ones out there i've met but you know a few so i started you know kind of crafting a way to to do things differently and make sure that i set them up but i exposed the bullshit i'd seen um you know defendants sitting there in trial you know, angry at me. I'm like, why are you angry? Well, you're making me go to trial. I'm like, hold on. I, we tried to settle this case, man. Like, what do you mean? And, you know, I, I learned early on, you know, the more cases you try, the more you learn. Now, I learned early on that, that the settlement communications aren't going to the actual insured defendant. And they end up having to sit there during that trial as the pawn when we all know it's the insurance company that's pulling the strings. They're the puppet masters. So I thought, what, what can be done differently? And I started writing letters and they started working and I started, you know, crafting letters, making them better and better. Sometimes I'd settle cases for, you know, a lot of money, as much money as I, I as a jury would have given, given my client. And then I started getting paid after, after the verdicts because the insurance company and insurance defense lawyers are, were afraid of the consequences of not cutting the check. Got really proficient at it. Figured I should, I should share. I should teach other people how to do this. And one of the big motivating factors was hearing about cases 
that get settled in tragic cases for way less than what they're truly worth, which is injustice to, to everybody, not just that person who's been, who's had their, their case settled out cheap, you know, who's, who's had their life destroyed, who's been seriously injured, and they're getting next to nothing. But that, you know, lowers the bar for everybody. I believe in raising the bar for everybody. You know, make, make the height as high as you can. Let's float all the boats. Let's get everyone up there. Everybody deserves justice, right? And I can't do it all. But if I write a book, you know, that, that shares the methods that I have, then great. Other people can benefit from it, and that makes the world a better place. Now, some of the things I like in your book is just the change in the mindset and just refusing to play by the defense's rules and not letting them create the, the paradigm for how we negotiate, how we value cases, how we time things. Uh, and then you have a, a chapter that really resonated with me, the power of no. Uh, and it's something we struggle with because, you know, you, you get to know these lawyers over time. Uh, and, you know, we do mostly trucking. And so we, we see the same lawyers over and over again. And we'll make a policy limits demand with a time limit. And of course, as it's coming up, they want to talk to you. They want to talk to you off the record. And they, you know, can you, can you make me look good? Can you help me save some money? You know, we want to talk. Can we get an extension? We need more time. And, you know, the right answer almost invariably is when you say no, they make no. you feel real bad, but they also pay you the policy limits um, pretty right before your, before your demand expires. Why do we feel bad? I mean, they attack us and our clients constantly. They call us liars. They call us greedy. They make false aspersions against us and our clients both, uh, both in trial and in the whole process. But yet when we call them on our stuff, I don't know. I almost feel like I'm feeling They're guilty. They're so offended. But I, I have to get past my own guilt about calling them out on their stuff. I don't want to look like I'm not a nice person or that I'm being mean. or I don't know. What is it? Uh, why is it hard to... I do it, and uh, and it works. But why is it? Why do we have that resistance? I think it, if you if you see me in the courtroom, and most of the trial lawyers I know that are very successful are very kind. They're gentle people. Gentle women, gentle men, kind, accommodating. You know, you need anything, you know, from me, and I'm going to give it to you. And by taking the running with the bulls, you know, techniques and methods, it's really the opposite. But what you, what you, need, to, you need to frame in your mind the, the reality that it's not the defense lawyer making the decisions at all. How many times, think, think of this, how many times have you had a defense lawyer who's acting like, you know, she or he is, you know, your, your good old buddy and your good old pal saying, man, I really wish I could settle this case for you. I hear you. I love your client. I like you, but it's not up to me. Yep. You know, I've tried. I've tried for you, but man, they just won't put any more money on this. How many times have you heard that? A lot. Countless. Now, let me ask you this. 
how many times do you think they were bullshitting you? I know when I worked at a big firm in New York, one of the partners told me that negotiation's all about whoever lies the best. So Yeah, they're bullshitting you 99% of the time. So just cut them out. Cut them out of the middle. These letters are to the insurance company. They're not even to the, to the defendant, really. We're insisting that the defendant, that the actual, actual insured policyholder defendant gets copied on all these and, the, and that they get to read them and they get independent counsel. But when you get a call from independent counsel, which we've all had, yeah. they're appreciative, aren't they? My last, I had a deposition where the truck driver ended up on meth and independent was on meth at the time of the crash. And the independent counsel after the depositions, he came to watch them, came to me and says, now you copied me on that demand and you don't take a penny less than that policy. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, outraged they even had to do depositions in that case. So you just got to reframe what you're thinking. These defense lawyers, they're bullshitting you, even the ones that, are your friends. And, it, and if you think that because you're a member of a boda or something, you know, that these guys are your pals because you go to Hawaii with them once a year, they're not your pals. They are the enemy because they're working for the enemy. Darth fucking Vader working for the Sith Lord. And they want you to play by their rules and they want to wine and dine with you and be your pal so that they can take advantage of you and fuck over the person who you've taken an oath, who you've sworn to represent. You can be kind to them in trial. You can accommodate them during litigation. But when it comes to money, settling the case, don't hold anything back. Yeah. Let them have it. Expose what's really, really going on. Now, another thing that really rang true with me and, uh, you know, saying no, the defense has, you know, been hard, not on dollar amounts for me, but as far as just breaking the rules, I've had to learn to force myself to, to, to not play the game, uh, and not worry about whether they like me or not. The other thing I've had trouble saying no to in my career that's caused me much more damage is saying, having trouble saying no to cases. Uh, and that's something I've been, Mallory can tell you, I've been working really hard on that the last three years of, of having enough self-respect and self-love to be picky on the, pickier on the cases I take. And you have a great rule. You have a t certain rules uh, in your settlements. And one is don't take cases you aren't willing to take to trial. That's correct. So what is, what is your, because you've taken tough cases, what is your criteria for a case that you'll take? I get asked that question a lot. There is no criteria. There is no criteria. So um, the, do, I, do I feel something inside, really? Is, is there something that, that burns inside of me when, when I hear the story of the case? Is there something that, that I think I can do for this person? And can I imagine myself standing in front of a jury, however big, however small the case might be? You know, I, I, I don't like taking a bunch of smaller cases. I mean, if I could just right now and pick and choose and say, you know, am I ever going to work on a case again that I'm not going to make a million dollars on? 
except for the pro bono work that I do. And I do um, pro bono criminal jury trials. I've, I've done those my entire career. And I'll do other pro bono cases. But other than that, if I could, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, work on a case unless it's, it's worth a million dollars to me, you know, to take, to take weeks or a month away from my life because I'm, I guess, at that level now, right? Right. But then what about that, that family whose, whose child got negligently killed in one of these states where there's a 250 cap? Who's going to represent them if, I, if I'm not willing to because I care more about money than I do justice and truth and, you know, exposing what happened and making sure that, that this child didn't die in vain, that there's actually you know, something that's done about it. If, if I'm, if I'm not willing to take those cases, who else is? Cause if I'm, if I'm setting an, an example for people in this country, I need to lead by example. And I want people to take those cases and I want people to take the cases where the insurance company isn't, you know, is offering $7,000 on a, $3,000 on a case where they should be paying 50 or not paying a, a woman, you know, who, who slipped and fell at Costco, suffered a pretty bad injury and they're not offering her a single penny. Reminding that, you know, Costco's never lost a case. Who's going to take those cases? If we don't, no one will because people look up to us is the, lawyers that have been trying cases for a number of years. Now you're doing on those, I don't know, at least on a California cap, Brad, and I don't know all the details I wanted to ask you, you're leading an effort to try to change that unjust cap that we actually copied in Texas, uh, not indexed for inflation, you know, what was it, 250 for non-economic damages? That's right. What are you doing to try to change it? Getting it on the ballot educating the voters it'll be on the 2022 ballot because of the coronavirus it won't be on the 2020 ballot i got all the signatures i spent five million dollars my own money to get that done and pulled together um close to a million signatures which we only need 600 and some odd thousand got a great team and we're going to get it done and we're going to come to Texas and we're going to do it in Montana. We're going to do it in Colorado because these caps are wrong. What can we do to help? Spread the word and get on Fairness Act, F-A-R-F-A-I-R-N-E-S-S, act.com, fairnessact.com, and donate money because this is going to cost $50 million. And that's, well, that's what we awesome. got to raise. But you're stepping up and doing that. Proud we can change it in every state. And if if uh, if we as trial lawyers who have sworn to uphold the Constitution and stand up for civil rights, all were to really, you know, just put a portion of our year's income into something like this, we could change it throughout the whole country. Problem is, as trial lawyers were short-sighted, selfish, greedy. Well, you know, put a little into something, but not enough to where it really hurts us. Not, not where, not going to do anything that's going to, you know, prevent us from buying that 
you know, that fancy car or maybe that next airplane. What do I do? Do I you know, buy that next airplane or do I put a million dollars into something that really matters and might, might change the world? A lot of people will choose that airplane yeah. or that new house or that vacation property or whatever else. And for those people who think that, well, trial lawyers, um, you know, they're, they're all about money. They're ma- making money that, you know, that they really shouldn't get. How about those fucking insurance companies? All we're doing is taking a little bit of their scalp with what we do. We're getting a portion of what, of what we win for the people we represent because our clients can't afford to pay us by the hour like the insurance companies do paying billions and billions and billions of dollars to their lawyers every year. Our clients can't afford that. And our can't, clients can't afford to, to pay the cost of a lawsuit. So they need somebody who's willing to put some skin into the game. And that's, that's what we do as trial lawyers. And it's so needed because the insurance companies, especially on the smaller cases, will spend more than the policy limit on these auto policies because they want to scare that lawyer and the other lawyers watching out of doing the next case. They want to beat them down and demoralize them, shame them. And a lot of, I think the last five or six years have really been a turnaround. I think 10 years ago, a lot of trial lawyers were demoralized. Uh, and I think that the... There's a lot more energy on our side. There's a lot more good things happening on our side, but there's a lot more energy on our side I've, I've seen than there was a decade ago. There was a lot more doom and gloom. I remember when I first came up from down on the Mexican border where I'm from, to San Antonio, where I, where I practice now, when I first started handling cases up here, I had mediators tell me, well, that's just not what these cases get here. You, you know, you're, you're asking for something unrealistic. I said, well, that's what we're going to take. We're not going to settle case cheap just because other people do uh, and then, it, you know, now it's a totally different mindset. We're, we're in, in a time that, that I'd call a revolutionary time. All the propaganda that the insurance industry put out in the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s, people have started to wake up. They, they don't buy the bullshit the way that they used to. And people are starting to realize our civil rights are being taken away that trial lawyers serve a very very important role with you know more people getting confident trying more cases preserving the jury trial method it's starting to become contagious so that's that's what you've seen that's what i've seen and i think we're both proud to be a part of it absolutely Going back to the, the brutal honesty, what is the area in the practice of law where you struggle the most? Wrongful death. Why is that? It hurts. It really tears me up inside when I try a wrongful death case. Yeah. Even when you win, right? Yeah. I pretty much won, won all of them. Well, I, I have won and lost cases. Uh, yeah, and they're both very painful in very different ways. Uh, but even you the know, I, <laughs> I lost a med mal wrongful death case, and that that really sucked. But just dealing with talking about a person who's gone and putting a value on the life 
it's it's really tough. It tears me up. Uh, they're, they're they're the hardest cases for me to remember and talk about because I relive it. Yeah, Mallory and I were talking about that on our drive back. It was a, about a five, four and a half hour drive from where we we got a verdict. What on a Friday, late Friday afternoon, early Friday evening, and uh, it took two or three days to get any joy out of the wind. It's yeah. not that it was a bad, but we liked it. it was a good verdict. Our client was, you know, she was crying, uh, but not because she was upset with it, just because she finally felt validated after all those years. But it's just the reality of it is so immense that it's just hard to, It's a, it felt righteous, but it wasn't a good feeling. Yeah, I know what you're saying. What's the area where you're working on yourself trying to improve? Trying less cases, spending more time with my family, saying no. I get, you know, I tried two cases last year that I got, when I, I got called in, I got called on Saturday night. I was, I was at my home in California. I have a home in California. I have a home in Montana, a home in Iowa. And Montana is kind of where we're at mostly now. But I was in California. I get a call asking me to come in on a case that starts Monday morning in Iowa. And off I went. And, I, you know, I'm glad I went. It's a, you know, a very important case and a pretty shitty insurance company. And we won and we got our clients paid. It was a, a good eight-figure result, you know, worthy of it. But being able to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to leave my family for a week. I'm going to stay at home and, you know, play with my kids and fill out some coloring books and go on walks and hikes. And, I, you know, getting away from that, that need to always be in trial, having the rush of the battle you know, going through me. That's been my life for 18 years, nonstop, pretty much. Really, um, yeah, just, just saying no, slowing down a little, trying maybe three to five cases a year instead of an average of 10. Now, at one time I would ask the question is, what would you tell a lawyer that wants to be the next Nick Rowley? But I think it would be a mistake for someone to try to be the next Nick Rowley. They need to be try the, the next them that gets similar results as Nick Rowley. Uh, but for lawyers that want to go on the path of trying to become a better trial lawyer, what are some of the things you would recommend that they do? I, I want the lawyer who who has the drive to do whatever it takes to be somebody that puts Nick Rowley in his shadow. I want, I want a lawyer to break the mold, to be somebody whose who's briefcase I want to carry. That lawyer needs to study everything that there is to study out there, written, everything written by Rick Friedman, anything anything that Keith Mitnick has to say. Listen to it again and again and again. Read what he has to write. 
meet lawyers like, you know, Roxanne Conlin or Paul Levera and absorb all you can. Go to Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College. He's still alive. And when he goes, get every video and audio tape, everything you can and listen to every word that, that man has to say over and over and over again. David Ball, read his stuff, whether you do civil cases or criminal cases, watch his videos. I've learned so much from that man. And the list goes on and on. Randy McGinn, you've got so many people out there that, that have given what they have, you know, in, in their arsenal, where they've, they've put it to print, they've, you know, put it into audiobooks or videos. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Learn from your losses. Don't give up. Always pick yourself back up and keep moving forward. Don't just try the easy ones. Never stop. Experience is, is invaluable. There are lawyers out there that, you know, that have tried, you know, 50 cases that are really good. I think when I got to the 50 case mark, that's when I finally figured out, started to figure out a little bit of what I was doing. And now after 150 plus jury trials, I'm still figuring out what I'm doing and I'm still trying to absorb everything that I can. Mo Levine, listen to his old tapes. And I, that's what I do. I study my craft and I write things out. I live and breathe the cases that I handle. I care about the people I represent. It's life or death. You just gotta, you know, somehow pull yourself up and, Dig yourself out of the ashes when you crash and burn, because that will happen if you want to be a good trial lawyer. You know, go and watch guys like Gary Dordick and Carney Shigarian in trial. Or, I mean, there's so many up-and-coming people. There are, you know, old-time trial lawyers that I wouldn't call them old, but, well, Brown Green is old. He's in his 80s. Learn from him. Learn from Brian Panish. Bruce Broilette. Man, watch his trials on CBN. See, see how kind that man is. And, I could go on and on and on. CVN is a, is a really, really good source nowadays to watch trials. But if you can get on a plane and, and go out and, and actually be there and watch a jury trial and be there for every moment of it, take notes and really soak it all in, then, you know, you'll, you'll learn a lot. I still like to go and watch trials. I, I want to go see um, Lanier try a case. Me too. That's on my that's on my bucket list. So that's somebody I really think think very highly of. It's that's the other amazing things about the people at the top of this game is that they're all constantly learning, and you don't hear a lot of trash talk about about the other. There's a lot of respect and kind of saying go learn from this person, go learn for that person, whereas. You know, and other, let's say on the defense end, I think you hear a lot of trash talk about other prominent defense lawyers because they all want to get each other's business. 
whereas even like within the same town when two people are competing for the same pearls, I just see a lot more respect on our side of the docket. And I, and I think that's something that's new too, because I don't remember it being that way when I first started practicing. I remember it was a little more cutthroat. I think we've come together more. There's some really good, good organizations out there that have helped bring us together. You're also spending, you know, your time and energy teaching other lawyers. Uh, where are some of the ways if someone wants to learn more from you uh, that they can do it? Trialbyhuman.com. You know, we do seminars every year. Right now, our seminars are, you know, not going forward. I don't think we're we're going to do any in person this year. Make sure everybody's safe. We do. We'll do one. And it'll be in Montana probably in August. But. You know, come to the seminars. And you can also, there's a, there's a listserv, and then there's a, um, another portion of the listserv where you get access to a whole bunch more stuff. It's, it, there's a paid component to it where um, you get access to a lot, a lot of other things. I signed up for it recently when I was preparing. Yeah. There's some really cool stuff on there. And we can actually pay to run this thing, you know, because it costs money. I don't make any money on trial by human. All the, the books I write, money, the proceeds go to, you know, charities or back to, you know, the organization helping us teach. I don't make a single dollar off of it. Something I, I noticed on your website that kind of resonated with, with, with me. And, you know, we talk about trial stuff. We also talk about some business aspects and on your web, your law firm website, it talked about when someone brings you in on a case, you don't, you know, one of the complaints we used to hear from referring lawyers, and we stopped being guilty of it, uh, but they, they complain about a lot, is that they hand someone off a case and they don't hear anything back until either they get a check or they get a phone call saying something went wrong. Uh, and you guys seem to do it differently. Well, most of the cases, if you call me up and you want me to be involved with the case, I don't say, all right, great, send it my way and, you know, we'll, we'll give you a referral fee. They, Let's work together. I, I can learn... I can learn as much from you as you can learn from me. So let's, let's work together. Stay, you know, don't, don't just hand me the case. Let's, let's divvy things up and we can accomplish so much more as a team than we can as individuals. So the, the lawyers that bring us in on cases, even if they're, they're very, very inexperienced or it's a case that's, that's in an arena that's out of their league, that they don't know anything about. Say, well, stay involved. Read everything. You know, learn how to do it. Because the next time you get one of these cases, I may not be able to help. But if you learn how to do it, you'll be able to do it on your own. And if we go to trial, man, let's, come on, we'll have you take some witnesses. Let's let's do it together. And that's something else that's awesome. Like, that's something else that changed over time. Because I, when I was a younger lawyer, I had senior lawyers telling me things like, oh, don't let the referring lawyer find out how to do it, then they won't need you next time. Uh, and there's much more of, I think, an abundance mentality nowadays that there's plenty out there yeah. for us. I agree. Mallory, is there anything you want to ask? No, I mean, I found the conversation very interesting. It's, you know, I always love to learn <laughs> from other people. Mallory's my trial partner. We try cases together, so. I always, I always do my best to have a trial partner with me. Most oftentimes, it's my wife, Courtney. And if you guys um, haven't read Trial by Woman or been on trialbywoman.com, you should. Mallory, there's a monthly call. 
Actually, men can be part of it too, but you ought to be part of it. I'll check it out. Is there anything else you want to talk about? That's all. I really appreciate you guys inviting me to your podcast. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thanks so much. I can't wait to meet you. Hopefully I get to meet you in person one day. It's been really nice talking to you. It would be my honor and privilege. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on ratings and review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.